I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, more, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to the Magnificast, the podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Dean Detloff, and I am very hot. And I'm Matt Bernico, and I'm also extremely warm. I, I'm <laughs> hot. I think I'm hot. Yeah, it's a hot one. It's a hot one. I'm down here in Missouri, and it's too hot. It's uh, It rained a lot today, and it's even humid. And this has been the Magnificast Weather Report. <laughs> that's right up here in ontario still also very hot um pretty humid it's supposed to rain this week so we're all just anticipating that um it's i should say it's ontario hot which is to say 80 degrees <laughs> for other people that <laughs> is not hot at all but for me holy cow is it hot i'm sweating right now and i don't like doing that at all uh yeah eight degrees i i don't know i think that's too hot my <laughs> uh my son he um, he's always wearing a uh, a Darth Vader costume like 24 <laughs> seven. He's always got it on. And uh, lately I've had to really I've had to work very hard. Uh, my wife and I have had to work very hard to convince him that he needs to take it off before he goes outside <laughs> because you can't wear a Darth Vader costume when it's like 95 degrees out. That's it's true. just as bad. It's not good. <laughs> uh that's good well um one of these days he'll figure it out uh whether through diplomacy or the hard way Um. (laughs) (laughs) i'm gonna have to blow up his death star to get him to take that costume off (laughs) that's right uh well we're not talking about the weather this week we are talking uh we're continuing some conversations we've been having the last couple of weeks about christianity and marxism and how marxism can help christians avoid some pretty bad unforced errors i think (laughs) when it comes to thinking about uh politics and capitalism and labor and all that kind of stuff Um, Before we do that, though, uh, there's a lot going on in Minneapolis right now, which is based on the police murdering a black man named George Floyd. We are not going to talk about that this week, obviously. Um, We have some other plans, and we're, I don't think, the best people to really be paying attention to talking about it anyway. But all that to say, it's something that should be on your radar, and you can find all kind of info um, about that online and elsewhere. Probably, you know, already if you listen to this podcast, but um, we just thought it's important to at least mention Uh, Anyway, what we are talking about this week is uh, how Christians have tried to uh, talk about labor, especially in light of this pandemic, which has brought them to all kinds of bizarre conclusions about unemployment and how labor works and how working works. And uh, Matt has done some extremely hard work uh, researching the very worst takes that you could find. That's right. Uh, This week we're going to do something we kind of like we did last week, but with labor rather than political economy. Um, 
in the midst of COVID-19, it seems like everyone is a labor reporter, uh, even evangelicals on the Gospel Coalition website. <laughs> uh, I dug in there this uh, this week and I found a lot of gems, uh, the kind you don't want, though. Um, <laughs> what's interesting, though, um, y- y- you know, like y- you can um, in past episodes, I've said that, you know, you can you everywhere you look is just labor articles uh, during COVID-19 because um, that is an extremely contentious issue. And um, what's wild though, is that a lot of these like Christian outlets, um, you know, uh, gospel coalition or um, even like Christianity today or whatever, not a lot of takes on labor, um, which is I think really sad and (laughs) (laughs) bad. Um, But, um, but if you know where to look, you can find how they've transformed the energy around labor reporting into something wildly different. <laughs> so <laughs> instead of talking about like labor struggles and union drives and strikes and just all the rest of it, <laughs> Christian writers and journalists in the sort of evangelical bubble um, have found some extremely individualistic and bourgeois rhetorical routes for talking about labor, um, uh, mostly um, focusing the conversation on unemployment and uh, how Jesus still loves you anyways. Um, <laughs> yikes. I wish that was just like a, a, a mean caricature of their position, but it's not. Um, so in this episode, we're going to take a look at how evangelicals are dealing with the mounting stress of massive unemployment, like I, I, it's been a bit since I've checked the numbers, but earlier this month, it was like one in six Americans have uh, have filed for unemployment. So there's just tons of people without uh, without work at the moment. Um, I'm sure that's kind of changed now that uh, um, most of the stay at home restrictions have relaxed in a lot of different states. But, um, you know, who, who knows? Uh, there's also this like, you know, a huge recession that is happening now and and, and more looming on, on the way. So, um, uh Christian writers and journalists are just having a whole hard time figuring this thing out. So last, like last week, we're going to offer up uh, what Marxist analysis has to offer Christians in hopes of making them just a little bit better at understanding the world. It's not <laughs> like they're going to be listening to this podcast, but I think it's helpful um, to, to get some of these ideas out there because they're, you know, the basic and most essential ideas about labor from Marxist theory um, that I think you can find. So, so all here it goes. That's right. Uh, yeah, I mean, also, we should say, OK, we're obviously going to dunk on these very bad takes. Um, but the purpose of the episode, in I think, in, in general, is to just continue that assumption that uh, Marxism does kind of help you get your head around things in a way that uh, can say more than Jesus still loves you if you're unemployed. Um, I mm-hmm. mean, Jesus does still love you if you're unemployed, but also Jesus wants to abolish capitalism. So uh, different conclusions. Uh, why don't we start out with our old friend, uh, Joe Carter. Um, for folks who don't know, Joe Carter is not somebody you have to know, but <laughs> yeah, uh, he's like, a, he's a libertarian Christian guy. He wrote for this very uh, bad place called the Acton Institute. He also writes for the Gospel Coalition. Um, and he's a, you know, capitalist economist. And his job is to explain to Christians why they should be capitalists, how capitalism works, etc. cetera. Uh, for the Gospel Coalition, he wrote an FAQ article called uh, What Christians Should Know About Unemployment. Um, It's a pretty goofy article because it is literally just like a bunch of uh, copy-pasted information, it feels like, about like how unemployment works and uh, what it is and its statistics. I mean, it's baffling that there's not a sentence that's like Webster's Dictionary defines unemployment (laughs) as. Uh, But anyway, that's the the level of analysis here. Um, 
Maybe we could just pull out a few uh, juicy passages here and uh, talk about kind of what they represent. Um, so Joe Carter at one point asks, why should Christians care about unemployment? Uh, he says, the account of creation in Genesis tells us that from the beginning, humanity was created to work. God puts Adam in the garden to work it and keep it. And he goes on to say, by serving our neighbors, we use our time, talent, and skills in a way that honors our provider and leads to human flourishing. Because jobs can serve the needs of our neighbors and lead to human flourishing both for the individual and communities, they are the most important part of a morally functioning economy. Yikes. And because jobs are important for human flourishing, um, it's like find a thesaurus. Unemployment should be a primary concern for Christians. Conversely, not having a job can adversely affect spiritual and psychological well-being of individuals and families. Unemployment can have negative effects on communities, families, and a person's subjective well-being and self-esteem. And so all of this leads Joe Carter to conclude long-term unemployment is not just a mental health crisis. It's also a spiritual crisis. And the church is the only institution in America that can adequately respond. Helping people to find work that is uniquely their own and contributes to the flourishing of the wider community should therefore be one of the chief economic concerns for the Christian community. All right, Matt, how does uh, Joe Carter's um, entry into the the Christian concerns about unemployment uh, strike you? It is bizarre. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I think, to say the least. Um, before I tell you exactly how I feel, let me uh, let me also tell you this: that in this FAQ article, it is it, first of all, it's nearly unreadable because it's just like <laughs> facts about unemployment. <laughs> but this is like buried like uh, three or four paragraphs in, like uh, you know, under all kinds of facts about who you need to call and like what person you should get in touch with your with your state. Like just wedged into this article is this like weird thing about like this weird theology of labor. <laughs> um, but all that aside. Yeah, I mean, I think this is so okay. It's bizarre because it, Joe Carter's not wrong. It it does have negative effects on your psych- psychology, your psychological mm-hmm. state, right? It's it's bad for your mental health to not have a job, but he never actually says why it's bad for your mental health. It's just that mm-hmm. it is, <laughs> right? And it's like it's bad for your mental health because uh, you're going to be constantly stressing about how to uh, pay your bills and how to support your family and like mm-hmm. what are you going to do, right? But like the weirdest thing about this explanation of unemployment and why it's very stressful is that there's nothing in here about like economic stability (laughs) there's nothing in here about like you know like how you're going to meet your your extremely material ends instead joe carter jumps to this like extremely (laughs) extremely like um just just weird stuff about how it's going to affect your spiritual life and your psychological effects but never to the never to the material cause of these things and it (laughs) drives me absolutely crazy (laughs) um so i think that's a huge problem for joe carter but um I also want to say too that I think that even though these are from the Gospel Coalition, I didn't I didn't just pick these articles because they were like low hanging fruit and easy to uh, easy to just dunk on. I think that even what Joe Carter is saying here is probably not that far off from from what you'd hear other places too, right? That um, people at church aren't quick to talk about your whole money situation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I think that uh, what Joe Carter is doing here is probably not uncharacteristic of the way that a lot of sort of evangelicals would deal with the problem. So it's frustrating because it, it uh, completely ignores uh, the material situation. Uh, and I think that it's kind of on par for the way Christians talk. What do you yeah, think? Yeah. No, I think that's right. All, all of what you said is right. Um, the thing that you brought out that I think sticks with me, too, is that uh, for Joe Carter, unemployment is really a, a sort of psychological and spiritual problem. 
Um, but it seems like a very kind of, uh, well, what you'd expect, I guess, from a certain libertarian perspective, it's a pick yourself up by your bootstraps mentality, right? That mm-hmm. um, being unemployed is depressing because it makes you feel bad about yourself. Uh, because, of course, it would be your fault if you didn't have a job. Um, so there's all these kind of really weird uh, pathologies that I think are sort of unsaid, like evangelical ways of seeing oneself and other people. Um, that enable this strange kind of overlooking of maybe the material concerns or effects or causes even of unemployment in general, which I think is just a, I don't know, like, obviously it's bad because you want to understand the full situation, but it's also the worst kind of thing that Christianity often does, evangelicalism in particular, is uh, it it uh, speaks the language of compassion, you know, like, mm-hmm. oh, this is a mental health crisis. But really what it's doing is using that language to cover over all the kinds of questions you should ask as a compassionate person, which is, you know, like, you know, why do people feel depressed when they're unemployed? Well, because we have an extremely predatory and, and dangerous economy, right? That's a liver life or death situation if you have a job. Um, so anyway, yeah, I think that's the thing that really is driven home for me by Joe Carter's FAQ here. Yeah. One, one more point, maybe at the end that we can draw out here, too, that I think... Um this isn't necessarily a good one just a weird one um so in the last paragraph that you read that sort of concludes the section on why christians should care about unemployment um joe carter says that you know unemployment it's not just a mental health crisis it's also a spiritual crisis and then he says and the church is the only institution in america mm-hmm. that can adequately respond helping people to find work that is helping people to find work that is uniquely their own and contribute to the flourishing of the wider human community. Therefore it should be the one of the chief economic c- concerns of the Christian community. And it's like, what in the world are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> like um, the, the church is probably not adequately equipped to help people find a job. <laughs> yeah. It's right. just not like, the, is there anyone there that's going to help you like with your resume? I mean, maybe if you asked them, but like, I don't think I'd want that. You know, once t- <laughs> this reminds me, um, one time, like it was like one summer, um, when I was in high school and I didn't have a, I didn't have a summer job. Um, my mom talked to this person at church who ran the local, uh, TBN, like the Christian <laughs> TV channel station. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was like, I think just trying to get me out of the house. So she talked to this person at a church who like worked there and was like, Hey, can you give my son an internship there? <laughs> And so, like, one day out of the summer, I went to go, like, check out what was going on at this weird-ass Christian uh, TV station, and I never <laughs> went back because uh, it was so absolutely disgusting and, like, cringeworthy. <laughs> it was just, like, a call-in Bible show. Uh, plus, I love it was that. all in Spanish. Yeah. Uh, and my mom, I think, just, like, hoped that that was going to be what got me out of the house. And, uh, listen, it wasn't, and I'm not going to. I'm never leaving the house, Mom. Sorry. Um, <laughs> Anyways, yeah, people at church are are probably not the first people I'd go to to find a job. Um, it's also like even if they were, they're not going to like find you a job that's like just and fulfilling. Right. First of all, because there aren't even necessarily that many of those jobs around. But the the primary goal here, I assume if Joe Carter, let's say Joe Carter was like, I'll help you find a job to a church member. Um, the primary goal would be to just get somebody a job, right? Um, to sort of fill that immediate need. But again, right. uh, it would be through that sort of bootstraps mentality. Um, out of it would it would be uh, heightening the feeling of desperation and anxiety rather than trying to find somebody some kind of dignified um, workplace. All right, boom, roasted. Let's do the next one. Um, 
so Joe Carter, he's out of the way. Uh, but here's another article from the Gospel Coalition that I think is actually really funny, but for all the wrong reasons, um, which I think is the case for most of these, but whatever. So this is an article called, Can I Ask for a Raise at My Ministry Job by Greg Fulan. Um, so some of these, uh, the, the next few articles that we're going to talk about really quick, they all come in the form of these questions that like Gospel Coalition readers, I guess, are sending to mm-hmm. These folks, I don't know. Anyway, so the question that uh, someone out there is asking Greg, someone who I'm sure is real, they ask Greg, it's been a long time, years since I've had a raise. I work for a Christian organization that doesn't have a lot of money, so I feel bad asking. On the other hand, I'm starting to feel a little resentful that I'm getting paid the same rate when my skills and responsibilities have grown. Is it ever legitimate for a Christian to ask for a raise? Is that putting myself forward too much? How can I do so humbly? (laughs) Oh, boy. Um, so Greg, he writes back to this person who again, definitely exists first, a Christian should absolutely feel the freedom to ask for a raise. I'm not saying that as an economist, though, economics are surely on your side. (laughs) Consider the following examples in Luke 10, Jesus sends out seven out the 72 and encourages them to willingly receive hospitality from their hosts for the laborer deserves his wages, which is a weird mishmash of things. And I don't think is uh, it's a, it's a bad gloss, uh, but I don't care. That's fine. Um, And then he goes on to say, if your employer is unable to pay you more, you can, can, you can continue to work at your current wage, viewing it as your gift to your organization. Don't do that. And those to whom you're ministering. Let Jesus's work for you bring contentment with what you have and give you delight and blessing in your workplace. Then you can humbly and freely ask for what your labor rightly deserves. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm really sold on this last sentence, but I don't think Greg and I would interpret it the same way. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. This is uh, there's a lot of a lot of moving parts here, Dean. But what? What do you think about this? What do you think about Greg's uh, suggestion to asking for a raise? Yeah. Um, So certainly like like you, I think, uh, yes, at some point you can humbly and freely ask uh, for what your labor rightly deserves. Um, (laughs) The wild thing in here, I think, I mean, there's a couple. One is presuming, uh, again, this kind of Christian pathology about service. Uh, you know, that you, you're offering your, your labor as a gift, which is uh, bad, um, not only in Mark's terms, but also even in, in biblical terms, right? Like, uh, I always think of that passage we talk about on the show regularly, uh, James 5, where uh, it, it indicts people who have held back the wages of their laborers, right? That, that's a, a biblical principle that uh, laborers are entitled to wages and that the rich are going to get judged for not uh, following through. Um, somehow Greg missed that one <laughs> in a whole, like one of the very few places the Bible talks about wages. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, the other piece here is, uh, that substitution of Jesus's work, um, for your own work, I guess, or like your feeling that you deserve more, that Jesus should actually be a way of kind of just smoothing that over. I mean, um, where have you ever found like a better proof of uh, Marx's indictment of Christianity <laughs> than in a sentiment like that, that uh, you give it all to Jesus and Jesus will make you feel great about uh, working for a low wage. And maybe once you finally learned that lesson, you can uh, politely ask for a little bit more. <laughs> yeah, um, man, I have worked for a Christian organization in my life and I would never suggest to anyone to think about giving your work to that to, to a Christian organization as a gift because they will <laughs> they will exploit you as hard as they possibly can mm-hmm. <laughs> based on that ideology. Don't do it. I don't work for free is a good uh just a good rule to live by. Yeah, I think um, so. Yeah. Uh Thanks. all right, let's uh burn through the last two and then get to the meat of this whole episode, which is let's, Karl Marx. I just 
I want to talk about Marks so bad. We gotta we gotta fire through these ones. Okay. Um, also, uh, this is by a guy named Brad Larson, uh, written very recently. It's called "Help: COVID nineteen left me unemployed." Uh, another question that someone definitely did write. Um, I was in the middle of a job search when COVID-19 turned the world upside down. Now I'm at home trying hard to trust the Lord to provide and deeply worried about my economic prospects. What advice, practical and spiritual, would you give to someone in my situation? First of all, that's so sad that this is the person I decided to ask because he's going to give them some bad advice. Mm-hmm. So um, Brad Larson, uh, he this is kind of like further down in the article, but uh, I think it kind of encapsulates his general feeling. Uh, unlike Joe Carter... Uh, Brad doesn't completely neglect the material, uh, but he definitely doesn't talk about it in in any sort of expansive way. Um, so this is what Brad says. Jesus will protect you. I lay my life down for the sheep. John 10, 14. If you examine your financial concerns, you will find a deeper worry underneath them. When we have money stress, we feel desperate and vulnerable. We feel alone, disconnected from the source of our sustenance. Feeling cut off from the flock, feeling exposed, this is right where the enemy wants you. If you are freaked out and stressed out about your derailed job search, you are tired and helpless and vulnerable and isolated sheep is prime pickings for a wolf. I'm talking mm-hmm. about spiritual warfare here, mm-hmm. of course. Beware of the whispers of Satan. You're a loser. You'll never find a job. You're finished. <laughs> <laughs> hey, <Sorry. you> <laughs> There's no way you're ever going to get a job. Hey, dumbass, check out your LinkedIn. Uh, don't <laughs> believe these lies. When you hear disqualifying thoughts during this time, take them captive and slay them with your hope in Christ. Remember that Christ, uh, in Christ, you're an adopted child of God. Okay. Um, so this sucks for some very obvious reasons. Um, uh, <laughs> I hate the I hate the idea that the rhetorical here, the rhetorical turn here sounds really good, but is actually bullshit. The if you if you feel like you're in financial trouble, if you're having concerns about money, what you're really worried about isn't money, but it's actually about these all, all these other feelings that you have. I think that sucks ass because yeah. like, no, when people are worried about money, I think they're actually worried about money. Like, <laughs> have you actually ever talked to anybody who lives paycheck to paycheck? My dude, like, um, they care about like how they're gonna feed their kids and how they're gonna make rent. They they aren't, you know. I'm sure they do feel desperate and vulnerable and disconnected, and that I'm sure that's absolutely true. But like, they're also worried about their money, and if you gave them some more, <laughs> it would change the situation for them. Holy yeah. shit! Um, I think also what's really fascinating about this is uh the spiritual warfare bit, obviously, um, because okay, there are like whispers of Satan right in a capitalist economy. Uh, but the lies that you're told are like, you deserve to be <laughs> like in this crappy yeah. job or like you deserve whatever job you're going to get. Like those are the, uh, the whispers of Satan that you have to find a way of, um, uh, combating, uh, the lies that you shouldn't believe. Uh, which I think is just so bizarre that like, um, for, uh, for Brad Larson, the lies of Satan are the ones that are basically, uh, holding you back from getting that shitty job that you need mm-hmm. to get. Um, okay, one more from Brad Larson. Just really quickly, I'm going to fire through this one. Yeah. Um, so this is from another article uh, from uh, last month from Brad. And uh, the question is this. I lead a small team in my company. I recently had to terminate someone for, for incompetence, and I had the hardest time figuring out what to say, despite the fact that his, this person has been coached and equipped and still fell short of our standard. I felt terrible to be the bearer of such bad news and guilty for sending them off without a source of income. I don't think I handled the conversation in the best way. How can I think in a biblical way about firing people? How can I do it in a way that speaks the truth and love? First of all, you're a psychopath. Second of all, let's get into it, Brad. So Brad says this. 
um, he thinks that um, there's a there's a lot of reasons that firing someone is hard, and usually those reasons are existential questions about our self identity, and um, sort of like our interpersonal reactions and communications with people. So Brad thinks that like um, we don't like firing people because we're always afraid about. Um, like what that will mean for what kind of person I am and uh, that the person will hate us. And, um, you know, some Brad does say too, that he would be afraid about what happens to the person when they let them go. So that's at least good, but um, still like, this is what Brad thinks is um, at stake in firing somebody, you know, your, your personal reputation and stuff. So um, Brad goes on to argue this, um, that we shouldn't be afraid to fire people because of these three reasons. First, because of the work of Jesus on the cross, we can rest secure in our identities. Jesus paid our debt so we can become the children of God with our identities secure in him because of his adoption of us. Big on that word, which is interesting to me. Um, mm-hmm. We have no reason to fear the reputation damage so long as we're acting in a God-honoring way. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's the first thing. You shouldn't care about what other people think about you because you're saved by Jesus, even if you mm-hmm. fire them. All right. Second, we have to act with great compassion, especially when firing somebody. Christians should count on other people um, more significant than, than themselves. And thus, it's crucial that we seek to preserve the other person's dignity and show them great respect. So mm-hmm. you got to be respectful when you fire somebody. Um, the third one, and this is the, I think, the worst one. Third, and this is the gospel truth that will help you sleep at night. God is God is the provider, not you. Who causes the rain? God. Who has, in infinite wisdom, allowed your organization to exist and prosper? God. (laughs) Who has put the food on the table and the clothes on the back of of you and the person you're firing? God. No, (laughs) no. And he's not a zero-sum God. He doesn't depend on you to take care of people. It's a wild thing to say when, like, the Bible says literally the opposite. (laughs) Isn't that crazy? Like, what are you thinking, Brad? Brad, what are you doing? This is also just like, I feel like a, uh, I mean, first of all, it's a great gospel truth that will help you sleep at night precisely because it will make sure that you never ask any hard questions in your life. Uh, <laughs> like, um, how, uh, how is like Raytheon, uh, uh, an arms manufacturer, one of the most profitable companies in the world? Well, that's just God. Um, that's what God wants. Uh, how, how are, uh, you know, um, like, uh, drug trafficking, um, crimes like really, really good. Uh, well, that's just God. Like God's up to it. It's not a big deal. Don't worry. Um, God's got it in his infinite wisdom. It's like, I mean, always the problem with theodicy is bad. Um, but it's especially bad when you start looking at it to uh, confirm the way that you live your life and license doing bad things to other people. This is like, okay, this is completely out of left field. But um, if you've listened to the previous week's podcast and the one before that, and probably the one before that too, Dean and I have been reading all these like wild books about pirates. (laughs) And um, (laughs) in, in them, sometimes there are these like religious characters that kind of come up and um, a a prominent heresy of the day was this thing called antinomianism. That was basically the idea (laughs) that like Christians uh, don't have to care. They don't have to care about the law because uh, God saved them already. And like, you know, there's grace and all these kinds of things. So like this led to all these like weird ass Christian sects who would like rob people um, like (laughs) brethren of the free spirit because they believe that like, Jesus already has got their back. We don't need to worry about any of this. But like, this is this this is a an absolute weird, um, but I think uh, true expression of antinomianism, where you don't actually have to care about um, ethical things whatsoever. Uh, you just need to worry about how like God's already doing all these things, and it doesn't really matter if you do it because like God doesn't depend or people don't depend on you. Uh, God's doing it all uh, behind the scenes. And um, man, 
when I read the books about pirates, I think antinomianism is awesome because like it's like this really weird, <laughs> this like really weird heresy. But here it's like, oh wow, this is extremely bad. <laughs> yeah, though the irony is that this is actually like a hypernomianism, right? Because the premise is that God is the the ultimate lawgiver and is just maintaining all the right laws, uh, including the economic ones or whatever. Oh man, good point. If I knew a thing about theology, I would have thought about that already, but I don't. Yeah, I, maybe I only know that because I go to a Calvinist school. Not this kind of Calvinist, <laughs> thankfully, um, but they are always pissed at these ones. So, um, I mean, there's reason to be. Yeah, exactly. Well, we've talked about evangelicals for half an hour, way too long than they deserve. Uh, it's now time to share the real good news, the gospel of Karl Marx. Uh, <laughs> Marx, uh, we've been talking about in the last couple of weeks, is a figure that Christians should pay more attention to, primarily because he helps us actually understand um, what's going on instead of giving all this bad advice <laughs> and pretending to be pretending that everything's fine when it super is not. Uh, we were thinking about how to deal with some of these kind of issues and we could try to maybe like pick apart one, I don't know, like uh, weird assumption that Joe Carter makes and answer it with Karl Marx or whatever. But instead of doing that, I think it's actually better to just talk through maybe some like basic principles in, in Marx on labor and uh, we'll kind of find the thread as we go. Um, there's stuff about labor all over Marx from the very beginning all the way to the end. Uh, some of it remains surprisingly kind of the same all the way through, which is pretty fascinating, although there's also development in Marx. Um, there's also tons of debate on early and late Marx, but we won't get into it here. Uh, in any case, all that to say, labor is a, a persistent theme, and what happens to laborers, why uh, capitalism needs labor and how it uses it, all those kinds of things are uh, front and center for Marx. And I think actually the best place to start is with a pretty famous um, short essay that Marx wrote when he was very young in a collection that is usually called uh, the Economic and Philosophic Manuscripts of 1848. Doesn't exactly roll off the tongue, um, but uh, it's a bunch of like, it's a lot of Marx's kind of early forays into political economy, trying to figure out how capitalism works, all that kind of thing. And uh Whereas the late Marx is all about figuring out the the kind of scientific processes of capitalism and explaining it to you in the in some some dry terms, uh, the early Marx is very like rhetorically charged um, and really kind of tries to draw things out in an interesting way. So I feel like that's a good place to start, and specifically with an essay Marx wrote on wages. So let me read a little bit, and we can just talk through. So Marx says, "Wages are determined in, in capitalism." through the antagonistic struggle between capitalist and worker. Victory goes necessarily to the capitalist. The capitalist can live longer without the worker than can the worker without the capitalist. Combina combination among the capitalists is customary and effective. Workers' combination is prohibited and painful in its consequences for them. Besides, the landowner and the capitalist can make use of industrial advantages to augment their revenues. The worker has neither rent nor interest on capital to supplement his industrial income. Hence the intensity of the competition among workers. Thus only for the workers is the separation of capital, landed property, and labor an inevitable, essential, and detrimental separation. Capital and landed property need not remain fixed in the subtraction as must the, as must the labor of the workers. The separation of capital, rent, and labor is thus fatal for the worker. The lowest and the only necessary wage rate is that providing for the subsistence of the worker for the duration of his work and as such, more as is necessary for him to support a family and for the race of laborers not to die out. Pretty grim stuff. Uh, Super but, grim. Uh, yeah. 
a very like stark way of putting it, right? Um, it's a lot of uh, maybe economic terms that you might not be familiar with, but what Marx is basically saying here is that capitalists, because of the way that they make and have money in a society, uh, can live a long time without a particular worker, whereas a worker constantly needs to make sure that they have a job because they don't have access to capital that can sustain them for very long. Uh, and their capital, the the money that workers get is always being siphoned in all these other directions, right, by landlords or um, to pay your bills. And nowadays, even more than back in Marx's time, your debts, things like that. Um, and uh, the big point here is that workers are in a uniquely precarious situation, uh, one that becomes a, a life and death struggle uh, for workers. Yeah, man, it's cool. Um, it's well, sorry, that's not cool. It's a cool thing to write, Marx. Thank you. Um <laughs> I think what really strikes me too, though, about this is the uh, the last sentence about the um, about you know uh, the only thing that's provided to a worker is a is a necessary wage rate that is uh, necessary for the subsistence of the worker um, and to support their family and, and so that the the race of laborers doesn't die out. I think that's interesting because, um, well, um, I'm thinking a lot about the minimum wage these days for for job reasons, but. Um, I think it's interesting because of how that is, I think, still true, but also has this like unique difference uh, in 2020 than it did in uh, 1844, which I'm, I'm there are a lot <laughs> of differences. But this one in particular, I think that um, uh, what's interesting, though, is that the the wage rate that is provided for workers isn't even enough for the subsistence for the subsistence of the worker or yeah. their family or or, you know, to, to make sure that they can socially reproduce or whatever. Um it's it's less than that right and and what's interesting though is that um even though we've uh you know there's a 40-hour work week that's the norm um or um or, you know and you only work six days out of the week or whatever um still we've we found ways to fit more work into people's lives through the fragmentation of labor through all kinds of different things right it's like extremely rare that somebody not extremely rare but it is um, it is common for someone to work one job and then have a side hustle as well, right? Because it's mm. hard it's too hard to make ends meet otherwise. So I think what's I guess what's interesting is that yeah, uh, subsistence isn't even assumed from one job anymore. Instead, you have to sort of get your subsistence, um, you know, eke it out from two different jobs at least. Yeah, um, strangely, I mean, there is a bit of that in Marx's time, too. Uh, like one story that I always think about in the uh, European labor movement in the late 19th century. This is from Mike Davis, but uh, he talks about how, like, there was this weird uh, gender divide within the labor movement because um, men and women were both working in a lot of places, but uh, the men were advocating for um like a wage given just to male workers that would allow them to uh, provide for their entire family, not have their wives go to work. And uh, the women were like, no, we also want a, a raise, but we also want to stay in the workforce. So there's this mm -hmm. really bizarre, like a uh, gendered kind of difference. All that to say, um, things weren't so good <laughs> back in Marx's time either. Uh, yeah. But the point is that that uh, providing the the subsistence for the worker um, again, that's always like the the very, very bare, bare minimum that a capitalist is willing to to part with, um, which in the case of especially industrial capitalism often meant people dying. You know, they it, it wasn't right. a subsistence wage that all ties, I think, into um, a theme that runs throughout all of those evangelical uh, essays, blogs or right. whatever you want to call them. Right. That that um, that Marx has something that they are all missing out on. And that is necessarily that like. Um, 
well, I mean, first that um, there is a certain type of power in uh, labor that the capitalists can't live without, but also it's a, it's a clear and like rhetorically strong way to just like lay out that workers actually work for money, not because of their mental health. <laughs> right. Right. Not because yeah. of the, the devil's whispering into their ear. And uh, your mental health isn't that great when you have a job either because of this very process. Um, but yeah, we'll say exactly. more about that in a minute. Um, all right, let's move on to another moment in uh, the manuscripts, uh, a different essay. Um, but I really like this point that Marx makes, and I wanted to draw it out, especially because I think it, it helps us get a handle a little, a little on some of the dynamics in these evangelical essays. Um, one thing I love about Marx is that he's constantly complaining about how capitalists assume all kinds of things that they never get around to explaining. And that refusal to explain licenses all kinds of bad stuff. Um, so Marx noticed this already in 1844 um, when he writes this. Political economy starts with the fact of private property. It does not explain it to us. It expresses in general abstract formulas, uh, the material process through which private property actually passes, and these formulas it then takes for laws. It does not comprehend these laws. That is, it does not demonstrate how they arise from the very nature of private property, Political economy throws no light on the cause of the division between labor and capital and between capital and land. When, for example, it defines the relationship of wages to profit, it takes the interest of the capitalist to be the ultimate cause. That is, it takes for granted what it is supposed to explain. Similarly, competition comes in everywhere. It's explained from external circumstances as to how far these external and apparently accidental circumstances are, but the expression of a necessary course of development, political economy teaches us nothing. We have seen how exchange itself appears to it as an accidental fact. The only wheels which political economy sets in motion are greed and the war amongst the greedy competition. Uh, again, lots of kind of jargon here. I'll just explain a couple. When Marx says political economy, um, what he specifically means in this context is capitalism. Uh, in other places, when he says political economy, he just means thinking about how, you know, economy works and how politics is involved, etc. Uh, here he's talking about capitalist political economy in particular. So hopefully that helps uh, a little bit. Um, but the real key, I think, is uh, what Marx is saying is people like, let's say, Joe Carter or others, uh, they take for granted what is already happening under capitalism. And then they say that must be a, a sort of natural way of, of doing things and a natural economy. Um, whereas what Marx wants to do is dig one step below and say, well, what are the kind of decisions that people have to make in order to get going in this process? What kind of relationships have to be uh, sort of foisted on to people to make sure that this process continues the way that it does. Uh, and I think that's a really important point because otherwise you end up saying things like uh, what these other Gospel Coalition um, uh, entries say, namely that basically God is in control, right? Uh, that like these processes are all being directed by God because they're sort of natural um, on the contrary, they are profoundly produced. Uh, and it actually kind of made me think of um, that thing that was in the last Gospel Coalition uh, essay we read, where the author says, God's not a zero-sum God. He doesn't depend on you to care for other people. Uh, Marx's point with capitalism is, uh, well, capitalism actually does depend on you to uh, keep keep it going. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, if God is maintaining on all of this stuff, then God also depends on people uh, being capitalists in order to keep capitalism going. Um, so all that to say, uh, it's a good point that Marx makes that uh, a lot of people who talk about getting jobs or, or being capitalists, etc., um, they don't ever bother to really think that hard about how all this stuff works. They just sort of take it for granted. 
Yeah, I think there's something really important about the way they take it for granted, too. I mean, you said uh, that, you know, it just seems like it's the the natural order of things for capitalism to be, you know, there. But um, I think actually, rather than just to, rather than it being the natural order of things, Joe Carter and I think some of these other guys definitely fall uh, prey to this type of thinking, too. It's a divine order, right? It's like uh, it's not just like this is the way that it works because of, I, I don't know. Uh, the natural order of things is because this is the whole reason God made people to, to work in this particular way. And I think that sucks so much. <laughs> yeah. But it's like, right. it's a way to, it's a way to disguise the whole situation that, you know, it, God, God made people to work in this particular way. So like, definitely don't look under the hood. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It's all sort of um, a distraction from the violence that uh, has to be maintained. Um. Yeah, for sure. Well, let's talk about okay. All these guys—they're—they're they're so worried about the mental health of people who don't have jobs. <laughs> let's talk about what Marx thinks about the mental health of people who don't have jobs. <laughs> yeah. Um. So, from the Philosophic and Economic Manuscripts of 1844, um, Marx um makes some interesting remarks <laughs> about uh what he calls the alienation of labor, and um. I think when I was first reading Marx, these are some of the the parts that were so uh, striking to me because um, when Marx talks about alienation, I mean, if you've ever had a shitty job, this is basically what you've experienced. I don't know. I think think to me, it, it kind of spoke to me because like this is, I think, real. I was convinced because uh, it was something kind of similar, I guess, to what I felt. Anyways, uh, Marx says this. What then constitutes the alienation of labor? First, the fact that labor is external to the worker. It does not belong to his intrinsic nature. Marx is using some gendered language here, but it's fine. It was in the 1800s, I guess. It's not fine, but whatever. Um, <laughs> it does not belong to his intrinsic nature that in his work, therefore, he does not affirm himself, but he denies himself. He does not feel content, but unhappy, does not develop freely his physical and mental energy, but mortifies his body and ruins his mind. The worker, therefore, only feels himself outside his work and in his work feels outside himself. He feels at home when he is not working, and when he is working, he does not feel at home. His labor is therefore not voluntary, but coerced. It's forced labor. It's therefore not the satisfaction of a need. It's merely a means to satisfy needs external to it. Its alien character emerges clearly in the fact that as soon as no physical or other compulsion exists, labor is shunned like the plague. <laughs> external labor that's good external labor uh in which man alienates himself is a labor of self-sacrifice of mortification lastly the external character of labor for the worker appears in the fact that it is not his own but someone else's that it does not belong to him that in that he belongs not to himself but to another all right this is um a, a great piece of writing that i think describes what it's like to work a very bad job <laughs> or, or maybe yeah. i mean kind of any job when it comes down to it but um s some are less bad than others i suppose a anyways <laughs> what is really interesting about this though is I, I whenever i read this it's i i'm struck by how like supernatural it is it's like uh you know um there's something else that's controlling your body for a little bit mm -hmm. um you you walk into your workplace and all of a sudden all of your wants and desires have to go out the out the door. You have to uh, compartmentalize them in a different part of your brain. So for like, you know, the next eight hours, you can do a bunch of things that some guy wants you to do for a reason. Um, it's just like, you know, you're surrendering all of your actual feelings and thoughts uh, uh, to uh, to your job for a while. And 
isn't that the most strange thing in the world that like people willfully do this and we think that it's like good or this is like the best type of economy that we could possibly have um i don't know it's just such a i think it's such a profound um explanation of why work in capitalism feels so bad yeah i think so um it's good too because yeah like we mentioned earlier someone like joe carter will say it's a mental health crisis if there's a lot of unemployment because uh unemployment makes you feel bad and that's true there's some truth to that for sure uh but also it's a mental health crisis for people to have jobs under capitalism at all um i think that is really profound uh and it's a really interesting thing that marx notes this uh already again in 1844 uh but it's crazy how much this kind of continues right like we haven't gotten better jobs (laughs) to make us feel fulfilled or whatever and uh like you said matt like it explains how to how you feel working a bad job but there's also something about it that probably strikes you even if you have a job that you love Namely, that if you don't own, you know, if you're working for somebody else, all the value that you create, all that wealth that you spend all day working so hard to generate, uh, at the end of the day, most of that is going to get pocketed by someone that isn't you, right? You're, you've sold your labor, so all the value that you produce goes to your your boss or whoever owns the, the company. And there's something about that, you know, I even uh, good jobs that I've had where I've enjoyed working there or whatever. And I even like the person I work for, et cetera. At the end of the night, you're like sweeping the floor and you're ready to go home. And all you can really think about is how you didn't really even make all that money for yourself. You know, like I'm not getting paid enough to do this, (laughs) that kind of feeling. Um, And I think Marx just does a great job drawing that out. It's a real feeling that everybody is hit with um, when you're working for somebody else. Yeah, totally. I think what's really insidious too about the alienation of labor is the ways that we kind of like trick ourselves into not feeling those things or like we let uh, this is I guess just like maybe speaking from some, from some past experience but like larger observations about people and how they act but we like you know we trick ourselves into thinking that like our job is um is actually what we want to do or we like let it kind of consume our entire identity so we don't really identify as people who are you know, doing something for a wage and we, uh, we identify as people who are doing something because this is like, this is our life's passion. I mean, kind of going back to that one, that one bit from the evangelical article about uh, asking for a raise where it's like, um, you know, uh, you should just get, you you can give your, you can give your labor away as a gift, as a service, as if like, (laughs) you know, like kind of like um, it's a way to talk yourself into alienating yourself more from your labor, (laughs) you know, just Mm -hmm. don't even worry about the way, just give it away because it's like who you are and like God gave you these gifts and you just give them away. Um, Anyways, all I'm trying to say is that there's, there's a way in which um, we cover over this type of alienation with a, like with a big false consciousness about who we are as people and like what the actual relationship is between our labor and ourselves. And that's bad. I think you're right. It is bad. Pretty easy to do Marx analysis when it's just all bad, huh? <laughs> yeah, just find all the bad stuff and there you go. You've done it. <laughs> um, well, uh, as we kind of get close to the end, one thing I do want to talk about a little bit more is how capitalists get labor in particular, um, because I think it helps to figure out, um, I don't know, just like why people have to get jobs and how they do. Um, because again, it just gives you a a sense of maybe location of where you're at in the capitalist economy, um, that these other folks don't have. So this is from, uh, Capital, uh, which is a late work. So we've been talking about one of Marx's earliest, um, 
pieces of writing. Uh, but this is on the other end. Um, and nevertheless, I think it's really useful to figure this out. Uh, I'll also, um, in the last episode, I introduced the the character of a, a Bible factory owner, um, Big Bob's Bibles, we'll call it. Um, <laughs> Bible Bob's um, Emporium, I don't know. Um, anyway, it's a great assembly line for making Bibles. Uh, I'm sure that's how they get made. And uh, just think about that character as we go through this process. So Mark says, in order that our owner of money, that's uh, Bible Bob, may be able to find labor power offered for sale as a commodity, various conditions must first be fulfilled. The exchange of commodities of itself implies no other relations of dependence than those which result from its own nature. On this assumption, labor power can appear upon the market as a commodity only if and so far as its possessor the individual whose labor power it is offers it for sale or sells it as a commodity. In order that he may be able to do this, he must have at his disposal, must be the untrammeled owner of his capacity for labor, that is, of his person. And the owner of money, uh, he and the owner of money meet in the market and deal with each other as on the basis of equal rights, with this difference alone, that one is the buyer and the other is the seller, both therefore equal in the eyes of the law. The continuance of this relation demands that the owner of the labor power should sell it only for a definite period, for if he were to sell it rump and stump once and for all, he would be selling himself, converting himself from a free man into a slave, from an owner of a commodity into a commodity. He must constantly look upon his labor power as his own property, his own commodity, and this he can only do by placing it at the disposal of the buyer temporarily for a definite period of time. By this means alone, he can avoid renouncing the rights of ownership over it. Uh, the second condition to the owner, uh, owner of money finding labor power in the market as a commodity is this, that the laborer, instead of being in the position to sell commodities in which his labor is incorporated, must be obliged to offer for sale as a commodity that very labor power which exists only in his living self. Okay, tons of uh, a little more scientific stuff going on here, maybe you could say, but uh, it's not that complicated what Marx is getting at. Um, what he's really describing here is uh, similar to what we talked about earlier in the conversation about wages. Um, there is a capitalist who needs to buy labor and there's a, uh, a laborer who needs to sell their labor power. Um, I think what's particularly useful about Marx's explanation of this is how the person who sells their labor has to kind of retain this feeling of, of freedom that they are selling it voluntarily. Um, and that they're selling it for a temporary period of time that they could quit and go sell it somewhere else. Otherwise, they would be a slave. Mm -hmm. um, it's this kind of like extremely, uh, in the one hand, marginal sense of, of dignity, but on the other hand, very profound sense of dignity when you think about what it's like for people to live as actual slaves, right? Um, but nevertheless, it's uh, still a, a shitty, meager kind of existence. Um, and I think that's a really just fascinating piece that Marx draws out that uh, once more, the capitalist can live much longer without the worker. Um, the worker needs to sell their labor for reasons that are more immediate than the capitalist needs to buy it. Um, and so although they might be equal in the eyes of the law, they're certainly unequal in the actual uh, situation of the market. Yeah, there's like um, there's a type of social power that's not being recognized in these like weird classical types of uh, economics that like, you know, if, if a worker wants to just up and sell their labor somewhere else, it's actually 
a lot of anxiety, <laughs> right? Like right. you have to go find somewhere else to do it. You got to, I mean, in, in 2020, it means like hopefully finding another place that has just as good insurance benefits, if any at all, you know, um, it, it's just all so, so silly when you put it in those terms though, right? That like, you could just go sell your labor elsewhere. It's like, well, <laughs> yeah, I mean, not really. No, I can't. Right. Uh, <laughs> it just doesn't work that way. Yeah, um, let me draw a little bit more out. Um, I hope I'm not belaboring it too much, but uh, a little more out from capital on what happens once this labor is purchased. Um, so Marx goes on to say uh, a little bit more. Um, he says the labor process turned into the process by which the capitalist consumes labor power exhibits two characteristic phenomena. First, the laborer works under the control of the capitalist to whom his labor belongs the capitalist taking good care that the work is done in a proper manner and that the means of production are used with intelligence so that there's no unnecessary waste of raw material and no wear and tear of the implements beyond what is necessarily caused by the work. Secondly, the product is the property of the capitalist and not that of the laborer, its immediate producer. Suppose that a capitalist pays for a day's labor power at its value, then the right to use that power for a day belongs to him just as much as the right to use any other commodity, such as a horse that he has hired for the day. To the purchaser of a commodity belongs its use, and the seller of labor power, by giving his labor, does no more in reality than part with the use value that he's sold. From the instant he steps into the workshop, the use value of his labor power, and therefore also its use, which is labor, belongs to the capitalist. By the purchase of labor power, the capitalist incorporates labor as a living ferment, with the lifeless constituents of the product. From his point of view, the labor process is nothing more than the consumption of the commodity purchased, that is the labor power, but this consumption cannot be affected except by supplying the labor power with the means of production. The labor process is a process between things that the capitalist has purchased, things that have become his property. The product of this process belongs, therefore, to him, just as much as does wine, which is the product of a process of fermentation completed in his cellar. So let me uh, break this down really quickly as well. Again, it's a lot of words, but the point is pretty simple. Um, what Marx is saying is uh, once you've sold your labor power, which is your, you know, just your ability to work, once you've sold that uh, to a capitalist, it's theirs. And all the stuff that you produce with that labor is theirs. Um, it's the same thing. Your labor is the same thing as a capitalist buying a horse for a day, right? They're, they're equivalent in the eyes of capital. And at the end of the day, your labor power is one more commodity working with lots of other commodities in order to generate value. And I mean, to put it in maybe terms that uh, might not be so um, natural to capital, uh, but nevertheless, I think are helpful. This, you might say, is a profoundly dehumanizing experience, right? That you're reduced to the level of one commodity among many others, and you don't even get to retain uh, whatever value you create, whatever kind of profit you create by mm. working for somebody else. Um, so that feeds back into all that stuff about alienation, I think. It feeds back into um, that differential of power. Uh, but nevertheless, one more place where uh, evangelicalism and Christianity in general just has a hard time recognizing because we like to assume that everybody is kind of on a, uh, the same playing field or you know, we're all treating each other with respect. And, and if you fire somebody, you better fire them re with respect as well. Um, but there is no way to really have respect for workers uh, in a capitalist society, precisely because they they're commodities among others, you might, you know, <laughs> nicer bosses might uh, be nicer to their commodities than others. But nevertheless, they're all commodified. Yeah, you know, this is, um, I guess it's interesting, because like, whereas Marx's explanation of the 
alienation of labor is like uh, an explanation of what it's what it feels like to to work and to sort of like sell your time um Mm -hmm. and your life (laughs) this is like the the other the flip side right this is like the top-down view of of what it looks like to do labor it's like the other side of things so on the one hand you know you have the sort of like the uh terrible existential dread you feel when you're at work doing things like someone else is possessing your body and then this end you have the like um this is what it looks like from the uh the side of economics and uh yeah i don't know marks this is a a consistent idea marks has across time (laughs) Uh, that's a hot take against Althusser for all those uh, theory Marxists uh, keeping score at home. <laughs> oh, oh well, I guess. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. Well, let's let's round out the conversation then with with a little bit of a with a little bit more of a, of, a, of Marx's hot take uh, from the Communist Manifesto from the chapter two on proletariat and communists. Um, Marx here is talking a little bit about wage labor and. Uh, the Communist Manifesto is one of my favorite pieces of writing, not just because it's like good and smart, because it's rhetorically interesting and I love it. So um, uh, this is a little bit here uh, and we can get into some of the same ideas, I think, but in, in a, a different facet, a different way. Um, Marx writes, but does wage labor create any property for the laborer? No, not a bit. It creates capital, that kind of property which exploits wage labor and which cannot increase except upon condition of begetting a new supply of wage labor for fresh exploitation. Property in its present form is based on the antagonism of capital and wage labor. Um, he goes on to talk a little bit more about it, but I think there's an okay place to stop even. Um, mm-hmm. This is short, but it's it's Marx is explaining like the very basic building blocks that um, that are missing from like every account of labor we've talked about from these from these Christian these <laughs> these Christian bloggers writing for the Gospel <laughs> Coalition. Um, you know they don't even they don't even recognize. You know earlier you were saying, Dean, that. Um, capitalism has all these unstated premises but like um and that's true but like i think from this bit of the manifesto what's clear too is that these guys don't even know like what work is like what it does in terms of the the grand scheme of of the political economy and man i just christians you need you need to understand this one thing right that like you don't just work for no reason you don't just work because god told adam to work the earth right there's a whole reason to do it and if you refuse to recognize that reason like you are you are an unhelpful part of the capitalist system like you have to ask a deeper question to to get to anything yeah it's also like sure people have to work right like someone will have to do productive work even in a social society all kinds of productive work um but the fact that people have to work is not the same thing as saying people have to sell their labor to capitalists in order Mm -hmm. to work which is a profoundly different question uh that isn't often asked i find by evangelicals or, or other christians for that matter yeah. Um, if you want to know what it would be like to work in a, a communist or social society, you just got to keep reading the manifesto. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Maybe that'll be another episode in the future, but not right now. So I, no. I guess what's the what's the big VeggieTales? What did we learn moment here about these guys? Right. Um, I think that the big thing for me is, all right, if last week we were talking about how progressive Christians have trouble, um, figuring out what's wrong with capitalism, because, you know, even they're opposed, even though they're opposed to it, they can't really figure out how it works such that they could oppose it in a meaningful way. I think that these obviously more conservative Christian takes on, on just how to sort of deal with the fallout of capitalism repeat kind of a similar era error, even though they're not anti-capitalists, which is to say, 
um, they rightly recognize there are all kinds of problems that capitalism creates, right? Unemployment is one, having to do really awful things like fire somebody, which is to remove their ability to take care of themselves financially is another. There's all kinds of them, right? Um, they, they recognize that those are bad under capitalism. They're not good. Uh, but they are willfully ignorant about um, why those things are the way that they are. And they paper them over with theological platitudes that basically are, are designed not to draw you deeper into, um, you know, God's love for other people or whatever, uh, but designed to make God's love into a sort of, uh, well, the opiate of the masses in the most negative way, not even in the good way that Marx mentioned. Right. <laughs> the the ideology that actually blinds you from what's really happening uh, in front of you. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, I think that, uh, I mean, just just think about, okay, so that's all true, right? These, the, these guys from the Gospel Coalition, obviously giving very ideological answers. I mean, what more could you expect from them? But um, I think what, uh, sticks out to me is that we're Christians to understand labor in this like very precise way that Marx does. Right. And I think that like, you know, we can even get more precise because social science has advanced a lot since <laughs> the, the 1800s. Right. We can add more data. We can add sort of refined uh, methods to like sort of look at, um, at political economy. But I think if, if we can, if we could even get Christians to kind of understand the economy along these broad terms that Marx gives us from, you know, all these different writings. Um, like we could learn way better how to like love other people, how to extinguish injustice from society. I mean, like it, it would just be like this huge systemic tool that Christians could actually use and like wield to uh, be politically efficacious. Mm -hmm. And uh, if, if we don't do those things, then I don't know, like, you're just missing out. <laughs> you're just missing out on all these opportunities <laughs> to do like the things that Christians ought to do. And I think that sucks. Yeah. And you're missing out on figuring out, um, you know, why you feel so miserable or why other people feel so miserable, right? There, there's a real, even sort of basic, uh, self-interested piece of knowledge that you just want to be conscious about why you feel so bad under capitalism. Yeah, totally. Well, uh, there you have it. One more <laughs> in the books about why Christians should be Marxists. Um, who knows when we'll get back around to it, but I think sometime we'll have to uh, do a little more political economy 101. I don't know. I hope it's been helpful, but I've actually really enjoyed going back to the basics. I feel like we've really dug back into the good word that is Karl Marx these last few weeks. Um, we'll have to do it again. Thanks for listening to the Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash the Magnificast. Um, if you could, you could also give us a, a nice review on iTunes or uh, whatever podcast platform you're using. I don't care. Just leave us a review. Uh, even if you're Spotify doesn't give you a space for reviews and that's too bad. So if you're using Spotify, just go to Apple iTunes or whatever and give us a dang review. Just do it, please. Um, cool. We have merch out there on our Redbubble store. That should be easy to find if you just Google it. That's probably a bad way to do it, but no big deal. <laughs> um, it, our intro music is by Amari Armstrong, and our outro music is by Theological Spoon. Cool. We'll see you next week. I don't want to get up at church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth, and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation, never get tired, never bored, don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord. Jackson, 
keep your hoods up, when you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late in Jackson. You keep your hoods up, when you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon.